Good morning. morning. Scripture this morning will be read from Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I want to welcome everyone to our worship service this morning. I'm grateful, as has already been said, that we have an ability to worship God together, although we are separate at this time because of the what's become known as social distancing. Um, but um, trust that everyone in our congregation is tuned in this morning and that you will receive or have received a blessing and will continue to receive a blessing and that we can still worship God together in spirit and in truth. I want to talk this morning about what um, was just read in our scripture reading um, because, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is essentially one of faith. Hebrews eleven six tells us this. Many other verses emphasize this. It has to be one of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so in the book of Job, and I'm really interested because when you study the book of Job, Job, the Bible says, God himself declares to Satan, brags to Satan, that Job is such a righteous man that there was none other on the face of the earth that was like him. And the devil challenges God, and because of this challenge, God allowed the devil to do everything to Job he could possibly do short of killing him. He did kill his, uh, his, own, his children. And Job suffers intensely at the hands of Satan. And during his suffering, brethren, if you study the book of Job, you will see that Job poses several questions to God. And these are not just typical questions. These are the kind of questions that arise only from severe suffering. What I've considered very legitimate questions and questions that I considered as you read the book of Job that deserved an answer from God because after all, God was allowing Job to go through this. And at the end of the book, when God speaks to Job, do you understand, brethren, that he didn't answer even one of Job's questions? Not one. I believe these questions from Job were legitimate and that they deserved an answer. You would think that God would at least say, well, Job, this is why I allowed this to happen to you. But God doesn't answer. What he does say, in essence, at the end of the book is, I'm God, you're not, trust me. Brothers and sisters, we've got to learn to trust God. We've got to learn to have all our confidence in him. We've got to learn to have faith in God, a biblical kind of faith that the Bible talks about. And so I want us to talk about this today. I want us to talk this morning about the God of the fifth sparrow because he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Let's look at those two scriptures. And, and Derek read the one in a marvelous way. But in Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Now, if you look at Matthew 10, you see there um, that the 12 disciples are given instructions for service. And in the beginning of verse 16, Jesus is going to talk about there's going to be a very, very hard road before them as they preach the gospel. He talks about the cost of discipleship and what it means to be a disciple and how it's going to involve suffering. And so this is what he says in the midst of that in our context. He says in um, verse um, 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? The reason they say a cent or a penny in some version, brethren, is because that was, that's the smallest thing we have in our money monetary denomination today. It was actually be a, a, a piece of a coin that would be less than a cent today. But for our understanding, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them 
Of all the birds in the world, brethren, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The Bible says he knows it. He knows when everyone hits the ground. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So watch, it, watch the conclusion. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Isn't that a marvelous thing? And then, as Derek read in Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, um, you know, he says, he, he, he says uh, five basically for two cents. You see, the cent was the smallest and least expensive um, amount of coinage of that time. And Jesus is explaining here, brethren, the Father's care and concern and love for his children at all times. We sing that song sometimes, Does Jesus Care? You know, when we're going, when we're going through those really hard times, the song says, Does Jesus Care? And the chorus answers and states, Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. And that's true, brothers and sisters. But we oftentimes forget that during times of severe trial. So the scriptures remind us and assure us over and over again that during our trials, God is still there with us, even in the midst of the storm. It's easy to declare that God is with us when everything's going good, isn't it? It's easy to say then, God has blessed me abundantly. He is so good to me. He cares for me as a father does his child. But brothers and sisters, when the hardship, when the trials, when the tribulations, when the absolute crisis comes, there's a tendency to shout as they did in many of the Psalms, O oh Lord, where are you? So Jesus provide, provides assurance like these from our text. We have the testimony of Scripture about that, brothers and sisters, not just in our text this morning, but throughout the Bible. If you read the Psalms and the Proverbs, you know, you see things of this. The Bible describes God as being our protector, our shield, our shelter, our refuge, our anchor. And, of course, the most famous Psalms 23, he is our shepherd who guides and leads and takes care of us in every way. But, brothers and sisters, you cannot adequately discuss God's provisions without a study of Romans 8. Maybe some of you were ahead of me this morning and knew we were going to go there. We have to. I mean, I mean, it is absolute because verse 1 begins with no condemnation for those who are in Christ and then ends, the chapter does, with no separation from those who are in Christ. And then in between, brethren, this chapter is filled with God's marvelous promises, okay? Uh, and, and so... I want you to please, I want to encourage you to read Romans chapter 8 several times this week. We won't have time to do a verse-by-verse -verse study, obviously, but read that whole chapter several times this week and see all the marvelous promises of God. But one thing this chapter does not do, brethren, this chapter does not promise a life of ease, a life of no trial and no suffering. In fact, in this very chapter, Paul acknowledges this when he states, for your sake... We are being put to death all day long, the scripture says there. And so we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, verse 36. And so uh, verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, this is what he says here, okay? Paul says, and, and, and one of your favorite verses, I'm sure, for I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glories 
That is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, we understand in this world we're going to have tribulation. Jesus said that, right? And, and so then we, uh, we should understand this. We should know this, but there's a lot of things that get in our way and so we don't want to accept this. One, I think human pride is one of the things that stand in our way. Two, we try, tend to try to be very self-sufficient. And, and then we have to have our uh, feet knocked out from under us every now and then to understand that God is the one that's really in control. But a whole lot of people, brothers and sisters, watch what I call the prosperity theology of the TV evangelist. And boy, they promise if you just believe in the Lord, everything's going to be a, de- a bed of roses. And that's not true. You know, and we Americans, you know, we believe, we have come to understand or believe that a life of ease and comfort is supposed to be our birthright. After all, we have entitlements, right? And so, and so we resist that sometimes. But Jesus and God in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has always said that in the world you're going to have tribulation. And so we need to understand that, brothers and sisters. And, uh, and so Paul says in our text this morning, you're going to suffer in this life. But what we have to do as Christians, brothers and sisters, according to verse 18, is that we have to compare those sufferings. We have to do a little bit of comparison. Because it said the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so what do we need to do? We need to look around when we're suffering. And when we're suffering intensely, it's so easy just to see that and nothing else and and nothing beyond that suffering. But brethren, that's what we've got to do. And we've got to do as the Apostle Paul says and say, okay, this is my suffering. This is what I'm going through. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's a crisis. it It is absolutely the worst thing that could possibly happen to the human race. And then you compare that with heaven. What does this suffering look like then? That's what Paul says we need to do, right? And he says if we, if we do that comparison, we're going to understand that it's really not even worthy to be compared with, right? Brothers and sisters, do you know that 30 seconds in heaven and we're going to say it was worth it? No matter what we had to suffer, I believe just as soon as we enter those so-called pearly gates that we're going to say, oh, yes. Yes, whatever I had to sacrifice, whatever I had to suffer, whatever I had to give up, whatever, those martyrs that had to suffer torture and horrible death for the name of Christ are going to say, yes, that's good. That's good. Worth it. Glad I did that. And I'm also convinced that those who quit, those who give up, those who say, I'm not going to serve a God that would allow me to go through this kind of pain and suffering, 30 seconds in hell, you're going to realize, friend, what you threw away. So then he says in verse 28, we know, and this is another famous verse that we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, brothers and sisters, this is, uh, in this, this word know, gnosis in the Greek, it means we know that we know that we know. It means beyond any shadow of a doubt whatsoever. We can know this. In our modern uh, vernacular, we say that's something you can take to the bank. You understand, you can know that. And so again, brethren, he doesn't say here that only good things are going to come to the Christian life. He says God causes all things to work together for our good. That means he works the good and the bad together, and he always does it for our good. Brethren, whatever God does, it is for the good of his children. Now, this is a marvelous promise because I can't do that, and you can't do that. I cannot take the bad, 
the evil, the, the crises, the horrible things that happens in somebody's life and make good out of it. I can't even see how good can come out of any kind of terrible crisis. Have you ever said that? Have you ever said to yourself or about another situation, there's no way any kind of good can come out of this horrible situation? But God can do so. And he has promised to do so. The God who cannot lie has promised to work all things, not some, but all things together for the good of his faithful children. Isn't that a marvelous, marvelous thing? And then verse 31, he says this, okay? Um, he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, the answer to that is the world. That's what the Bible says. If you stand firmly for God, the world is going to be against you. Jesus said the world will hate you. But the emphasis of this verse is, if God is for you, then what can man do to you? Well, they can do plenty, brethren. They can cause you trouble. They can torture you as, as there's many Christians today across the world being tortured in the name of Christ. They can torture you. They can even take your life, but they can't harm you because they just thrust you in the arms of Jesus when they do that. And then verse 32 of our text, brethren, and, and to me this is the whole key in, in what God is saying here in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. You know, and, and this is what should cause us to say hallelujah, Okay. Um, Romans 8, verse 32, I've, I've got it almost, I've got it memorized, but I want to read it just to make sure, okay? Because this is what he says in all of this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you see what he's saying there, brothers and sisters? God gave us Jesus. This was God's doing this was God's purposeful plan. It wasn't like Jesus said, well, I'll just volunteer to do this, and God says, okay, if that's really what you want to do, go ahead. It wasn't that way. God delivered him over to us as a sacrifice, brethren. And so he goes, he says, this is the key. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Brothers and sisters, I, I, God gave us Jesus. This was God's doing. He offered Jesus as a sacrifice so we could be forgiven of our sins. Now, let this verse take root and grow in the very core of your soul. What I say about this verse is, this is the way I'm, I give the little title and subheading to it. God gave us the best, so now he will give us the rest. If God did not spare his son, brothers and sisters, if he was willing to sacrifice his most precious possession, if God was willing to become flesh and die on a cross in order to save us, then why in the world would, we, he, would he withhold any good thing from us? Why would a loving God do that? Beloved, God will provide and care for his children because he's the God of the fifth sparrow. What's the end result of all of this in verse 37? <clears throat> After, uh, in verse 36, he tells us, um, if just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And you say, oh, well, that's a horrible thing. All that suffering we've got to do in this world? No, because he says in verse 37, but, but, 
But in all these things, what things? All the things Paul's been talking about, all the suffering, all the tribulation, all the hard time we've got to go through in this world, all the suffering, but in all these things, not some of them, brethren, not most of them, but in all these things, we conquer through him who loved us. Now, if you're following along in the Scripture, you know I left a word out. We don't just conquer. He says we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's how we conquer anything is through Christ, the one who loved us enough to die on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, we win. And it's not, we don't win, you know, at the end of life where Satan has 48 and we have 50. No, 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 no. We overwhelmingly conquer. We win a 1,000 to 10. We overwhelmingly conquer, brothers and sisters. We don't just conquer. I don't know if you've ever... I had to grow up fighting. I, I, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, and somebody said I had a, I, I tell people I had a striking face. People used to strike it two or three times a day. And, and you know, most fights, because I wasn't one of these that enjoyed fighting. And most fights, you know, I, I'd, I'd lose some, I'd win some. And those that I win, I could never say I overwhelmingly whooped up on somebody. You know, I come away with a lot of bruises and black eyes myself. And, and, I, and I may have been declared, quote, the winner, but man, it, it, was, it was hard fought. In this situation, the Bible says it's not going to be like that, brethren. We're going to overwhelmingly conquer through Christ, through what he's done for us. And so Satan and the trials of this world cannot defeat you. The Bible tells that. That's a promise of God, friend. You need to understand that. Somebody, well, he's whooping up on me pretty bad. He cannot defeat you. Only if you let him. Only if you give in. Only if you leave the one. He said, we overwhelmingly conquer through him, through Jesus Christ, who loves us. That's the only way we're going to overwhelmingly conquer. If you leave that source of power, if you leave Christ, if you give up, if you go back in the world, then, yeah, Satan's got you. But you've given it up. You've allowed him to do that. You don't have to. Satan and the trials of this world cannot defeat you as long as you remain in Christ. In fact, you will overwhelmingly conquer. But Brother Green, what if I get killed for the Lord? What if I got a disease that's going to last me the rest of my life and finally kill me? How have I won? You're in the heaven forever with Jesus, so you have overwhelmingly conquered. Amen. But brethren, the test of all of this lies in what we began this lesson with. Do you believe this? Do you have the faith and the confidence that God's going to keep his promise? That a God who cannot lie is going to keep his promise? You see, in our darkest hour, and we're going to go through them, and during the crises of all crises, will you trust your creator, your Lord, and your Savior? We may declare in our pain and our not knowing, we may, we may shout to God, I don't understand this. I'm confused. I've got a lot of questions, as Job did. I, I have all the whys and what ifs. Yet, I will continue to trust. That's what we got to do. Isn't that what Job said? Even though he slay me. I will continue to trust. Brethren, that's what we've got to do. Because it is, after all, a matter of faith. Our faith in a loving God who cannot lie, who promises to take care of us. 
People may differ in opinion on how and to what extent the Lord will do the things mentioned here, but that, but the fact that he will do what he said is not a matter of opinion. It is a question of faith, pure and simple. Do I believe his promises? Do I trust him with every fiber of my being do I trust him to keep them promises and to fulfill them in my life? Whether in Matthew 6.30 and Luke 12.38, two verses, for example, as God speaks of providing for his children, he often declares, O ye of little faith. Let's don't have that little faith. Let's grow in that faith. Faith is not just knowledge. It is belief. It is trust. It is confidence. Faith accepts the testimony of the scriptures, not because of our ability to fathom the depths of God. We need to understand that because somebody, well, I'd have more faith if I could just understand what God's doing. Brothers and sisters, I have tried. I've been a Christian for some time and preaching for some time, and I have tried to understand the love of God. Have you tried to really understand that? How can a just God love a wretched sinner like me. See, I can't begin to figure it out. And I'm telling you, I've spent a lot of hours and days trying to. But because God has said it, that should be enough. For God so loved the world, that should be enough. So then again, do we trust God to keep his word? Do we believe his promises? If we will, we won't fret and worry so much. It's called faith, brothers and sisters. You perhaps have heard the story of a widow lady with five children back in the 1800s before they had all the social safety nets that we have today to help provide for people. And the whole society was going through very difficult times, and her church had done what they could. She's a member of a small church, but they were pretty much stretched out because of the times that they were going through and things were rough and like mother hubbard uh, old mother hubbard her cupboard was bare and and she had them five kids to to feed and no job and she was really concerned and she put the kids to bed one night and she'd go on the back porch to pray as was her common habit as she would do and and she went back there and she was praying to god and she was getting pretty adamant and and the next door neighbor was an atheist and and he had always been back and forth with her about her belief in what he considered to be a false god and a myth and, and was really giving her a hard time. And so he heard her heartfelt prayer for that, that she needed to be able to feed those kids and she had nothing in the house to do it with. And would God please provide for her? And so the atheist thought, I got her, man. And so he runs to the grocery store and he buys a whole bunch of groceries. And he puts them out on that woman's back porch, and he's up early the next day and waiting for her to come out there. And she does, and they come out to pray in the morning, as was her habit. And she sees them grocery there, and she immediately begins to praise the Lord, right? And she's thanking God for all those many blessings and for providing her for her children and for answering those prayers and everything. And the neighbor waited just the right time, he thought, and he stepped through the bushes, and he said, Aha, girl, I got you now. He said, don't you understand? There's no God in heaven. He didn't buy them groceries for you. He said, I bought them. Here's the receipt to prove. I bought every one of them groceries for you. And she said, praise the Lord. He said, how can you continue to do that? He said, because she says, 
because not only did God provide, he made the devil pay the bill. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of faith we need to have in our Heavenly Father today. This is what Romans 8 is talking about. You know, look at our text, the lesson of our text in, in Matthew. Um, the sparrows are a very small, insignificant bird. They're one of the most abundant species in the world. And like in that day as well as today, there's the law of supply and demand, right? Rare, colorful birds from the tropics would fetch a very large price in that day. It would take someone like King Solomon to be able to afford those. But Matthew says two sparrows were sold for a penny, and Luke adds to it and says that five sparrows were sold for two cents. In other words, an extra one thrown in. Buy four, get one free. The fact emphasizes, brethren, their worthlessness to man. That's what he's saying, but not to God. You see, God is the God of the fifth sparrow. Beloved, God sees and knows and provides for our every need. This is what our text this morning is telling us. You know, when I first became a Christian, I believed that God was too busy for me to bother him with what I thought to be, quote, insignificant matters. You know, I thought God was only interested in the big things, the spiritual things, you know, not anything else, because after all, he's busy in heaven answering all these prayers, right? And so I prayed only about the big things, and I'd struggle with what I would consider the smaller stuff. But I was wrong, brethren, because God knows it all. He's omniscient, right? And so um, I, he, he knows the Bible. Says, and, I, and I had to change my attitude about that because God knows everything about everyone. He knows how many hairs the Bible says in our text are on your head. Now, Ken's made it easier for him, right? But he knows, and why he would care, I don't know. I don't know why God Almighty, the omnipotent Father, would care how many hairs I've got on my head. But that's the kind of God he is. We cannot overwhelm God with our problems. I sometimes wonder if, I, if God's going to ever say to me, Marvin, you've, you've reached your quota. You've asked too much. And yet the Bible tells us not to do that. It says you take all your cares and burdens on him. Brethren, we can't do that. If one sparrow hits the dirt, if not one sparrow hits the dirt without God's knowledge, if God takes care of the sparrows, as Jesus says, then how much more so will he provide for his children because we are so much more valuable to God than birds. Now, God created it all, brothers and sisters, including sparrows. But when he created mankind, he breathed his soul into us. And this sets us apart from the rest of God's creation. And so, therefore, you are so very much more valuable to God than the rest of his creation. And he says, do you have the faith to understand that I'm going to take care of you? Let's do some applications to us this morning very quickly about all of this. Okay? <clears throat> With reference to material needs. We worry about that. We're concerned about that. That's been a concern of mankind from day one probably. And Jesus tells us, and you know the text. And Well, let's look at first at Matthew. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13, 5. Okay? Okay? Um, 
the Bible says here, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Brethren, in the Greek that he says that in the Greek about three times, no, I will never desert you. No, 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 I will never forsake you. Okay? So God has promised to do that, right? He said, don't worry. Don't worry about that. Why do people desire money? Because it provides security or a sense of security. But God says, you know what? I'm going to do for you what money can't do. And then in Matthew 6, we know that text where Jesus says, don't worry. And, and he talks about all the necessities of life. And again, he uses birds as an example. If, if you, know, you see the birds of the field, and, and they don't labor and they don't toil, but God takes care of them. You see the lilies of the field. He gives all these examples. And then he says, but you know what you need to do? You, God's people, the disciples of Christ, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you as well. In, in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, this is what the apostle says, who's in prison now, mind you, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, oh, I'm sorry, let me finish this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 19, and my God will supply a few of your needs all. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, brethren, let me ask you this. If God supplies all your needs from his riches, how well will you be supplied? What about reference to trials and tribulation? That's what Job had to go through, right? Uh, you know, you, we know the uh, verse in James 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That means many are all at once. You count it all joy. How many of us do that, brothers and sisters? During trials, we usually don't rejoice, do we? Somebody slams your hand in a car door and you don't laugh and say, ha, ha, praise the Lord, isn't this wonderful? I'll probably have to have reconstructive surgery and never be able to have complete use of my hand again. But hallelujah, we don't do that, brethren. And this is not what the Bible is suggesting either. This isn't what James is saying. When Jesus faced the cross, he sweat blood and he begged God to take that cup away from him. And he was in agony, and he did not count it all joy at that moment. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that when Christ went to the cross, he despised the shame, but was willing to endure the cross. Why? For the joy set before him, meaning what was going to come later. And we can do the same thing. We may suffer intensely in this life, but brothers and sisters, we know there's a joy that's going to come later if we remain faithful to God. So how can we count our trials as being a joyful thing? How can we even look at the hardships in our life as having anything good come out of it? We can only do that, brethren, and I, and I emphasize only if we know that God is working all things together for our good, even using the sufferings and the crises and hardships to make us better and to season us and mature us. 
if we don't believe this, then what's the reason for enduring trials? Why endure trials if we don't believe that God's going to use them for our good? As a blessing. We have to emphasize again, beloved, it is a matter of faith. You see, God has promised not to place more on us than we can endure. And we need to believe that. You know why he's promised that? Because he's the God of the fifth power. We must know that God promises to provide his children with their every need. Now, do we believe it? Do we have the faith to live it? Beloved, we're talking about all of our needs that we have on this earth. Somebody said, we need a cure for this COVID-19, we do. But mankind's greatest is a cure for his sin. We need forgiveness. We need to have our sins washed away. We need to be saved and right with God. And the Bible tells us that God in his love and mercy has provided for that need. And the question this morning, if you haven't done so, is will you allow God to take away your the blood of Jesus and then will you walk faithfully with him it is after all matter of faith those of you that aren't able to be in this building this morning if you want to get yourself right with the Lord there's ways to do that and we would encourage you to contact us there's many ways you can but contact us and let us know your need while we stand in